This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3223 for Wednesday the 9th of December 2020. Today's show is entitled, My COVID Year Summary and is part of the series, Health and Healthcare. It is hosted by Be Easy and is about 18 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is, I summarize what I've been doing for the last year. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. time it's been a very busy year I'm sure it's been a little bit interesting for everyone out there uh, I'm on a walk up a mountain so I'm a little out of breath but it's quiet up here and I figured it'd be a good place to have an episode so here I am just want to go into a little bit about what I've been up to for this past year I don't know if I've said it before but I am a, uh, for my day job, I'm a consultant. I work with clinical laboratories in the U.S. And I do all types of stuff for them, kind of a jack of all trades. But I try to focus on uh, quality management and regulatory for one half of my business. And on the other half, I focus on laboratory informatics and uh, software engineering. And when, you know, in March, April, COVID really started cranking up and there were a lot of different initiatives in the U.S. for, and uh, incentives for companies to get into running SARS-CoV-2 PCR tests. And, you know, my background is in molecular biology and bioinformatics. And also, you know, I'm in the regulatory world for, for laboratories already, so... It was pretty natural that I started doing work in that area. I wasn't uh, expecting how busy I was going to get. It's been quite a year. But a couple of things that I want to talk about are just kind of my own experiences in dealing with this. And, you know, you can try to frame it. I'm going to try to leave it as unbiased as I can. You can put your own bias on top of it. (laughs) Uh, And I'm going to try to do my best to, to just say what my experience was. So, like I was saying, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of focus on we need to ramp up testing, and unlike a lot of other con- countries where they had like a centralized uh, government and a centralized healthcare system that said, okay, well, once we have this test, everybody has the same test, and we'll you know send it to everybody in the world, or everybody in the country, and then we'll all have a test. That's not the U.S. approach. Uh, we we had one test that was available for uh, public health organizations, but public health organizations, uh, even in a pandemic, even in this pandemic, only tested about, you know, less than 10% of all the tests uh, that, that were required. It's the private industry 
like your Quest and your Lab Cores uh, and your AREPs of the world that, that do the most of the testing. Uh, and then, you know, there obviously was opportunity for smaller companies that were already in molecular diagnostics or wanted to get into molecular diagnostics to, uh, to come in. And so that's what they did. They incentivized, uh, they made some incentives for the big companies, but they also incentivized smaller companies to get into the business. And so um, as a part of that, they had to, um, um, you know, it was kind of the wild, wild west for a little while. And a lot of companies that didn't know what they were doing and thought it would be easy and had no clue what the regulatory requirements were and had no clue about the complexity. They're like, oh, it's just like getting your blood, getting uh, your cholesterol taken, right? Well, it's not. It's nothing like that. It's complex steps and there's a myriad of different tests that you can choose from, from different companies and they have different um, pluses and minuses. Some of them cost more than others. Some of them promise throughput that uh, is un unattainable by humans or by people who have to deal with actual time. <laughs> so uh, it's been uh, it's been quite a challenge. But some of some of the things I've been up to have to do with um, bringing in. So first, helping some companies set up the test. You know, bringing my molecular diagnostics experience and say, this is how you do it. Helping them hire people who also know how to do it. Because I'm not going to sit there and run a test all day. <laughs> I have other things to do. So between that and um, and helping out on the, uh, on the informatics side, which became the majority of what I was doing. And then also helping out on the automation side. Because if you're going to do anything at scale, you're going to need advanced... Uh, liquid handling automation and other types of robotics to get you to the to, to the type of numbers that you really need. So for those who are unfamiliar with PCR and, and what you have to do to get these tests, uh, if anyone's ever gotten the COVID test, you know that they start out with sticking a swab up your nose. And the challenges that came from that point were the limited availability for swabs especially in the US, it became common practice for the different companies to pick the cheapest vendor that they could find. And most of the time those came down to two companies. One uh, is in China, one is in Europe. And when the crisis hit, those companies, they tried their best to get it out to uh, everywhere, but there just wasn't enough supply to go around and there wasn't enough options in the US in terms of uh, US suppliers to get enough swabs. So March, April, May were really, really tough when it came to being able to find supplies. Uh, same same is true for the automation and the and the liquid handlers and the and the PCR instruments. The you know it hit all these companies unaware and none of these companies or very few of these companies are or even if they're based in the U.S., actually have manufacturing in the U.S. So, as you can imagine, when when their governments came to them, they said, "Hey, you hold our you hold the stuff for us first, which is understandable. You, uh, they have a responsibility to their own people first. But so that was one of the biggest first challenges was just getting enough swabs. And I remember having meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, just on where are the swabs? Can we get them from here? Can we use these instead? How about these? How about these? 
and they have to be able to grab the sample but also be the right type of material that won't um, that won't cause interference for a viral test and so that was the first challenge and like I said was getting all the consumables so after you draw the sample you put it in the solution that, that stabilizes it and then you have to extract the nucleic acid out of it which is a chemical process that you can do you can use automation to make it uh, faster but it's still quite involved and then once you have the purified RNA because um, coronavirus is a positive strand RNA virus since it's RNA it's really unstable you have to store it at minus 80 and if you don't it'll degrade within hours and so a lot of there's been a lot of problems with trying to get samples to where they need to go fast enough now that there's the vaccine that's on the horizon the first one is a, is a RNA one and that's why it needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees Celsius is because it's RNA and it's not it's not um, being processed in a material that is both non-toxic to a human but also stabilizes the uh, the RNA so, so that was step one and step two and then step three came with uh, trying to get uh, say that you got the test you picked a vendor a vendor that's not gonna you know I mean it, all the vendors pretty much all the big ones they pretty much had a stranglehold on their customers when it came to the supplies because at the beginning everything you needed to have FDA emergency use authorization and so as a part of that you can only use the consumables that were a part of that emergency use authorization which meant that a lot of the reagents you had to get from the vendor and so you know there was no deals on price as you can imagine uh, then after that once they actually could start to run the test, the thing that almost none of these companies took uh, a real good look at. Oh shit, I'm not going that way. There is a coyote sitting in the road. There's a coyote sitting in the path right there, my friend. There's a coyote sitting in the road right there. There's a coyote sitting in the road right there. Okay, well, I'll let you go first. <laughs> uh, so, so that's the first. Oh, he's gonna run away. Is he running away? Yeah, he's gone. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. All right. Oh, sorry about that. Man, you never know what you're gonna find on this mountain. So after after they got past the problems with the reagents, they almost all hit a wall with their laboratory information systems. It has been a gripe of mine for a really long time about the reliance on all these companies on on software vendors that are hostile to their users and uh, emergency like this really puts that in focus uh, I you know I am a free software person but I understand I can't um, not everybody is the same way which is a, you know, what can you do? But, where's that coyote? You better leave me alone. <laughs> uh, if you hear me running, oh, there he is. 
know what? I'm going to turn around. I don't need to fight with the coyote today. So uh, all these companies, they have this problem where they don't let their users have access to the data. And they also don't have developers or people in their implementation teams that actually know the lab business. So they either build solutions that don't actually work in, in practice, even though they work, you know, they're, they may be well engineered. They have bad user experiences, bad ways to get the data in. Almost impossible a lot of times to get the data out and they don't make it really easy to, for systems to talk to it. And if you want to integrate with anybody else, it costs you a fortune. So that's been my experience for the last you know, 10 years. And that really does not work in a crisis. So I spent the majority of my time in the last couple months being a data steward, figuring out ways to get data out of these horrible systems. All right, I'm not supposed to talk about uh, my opinions. Out of these systems that make it hard for you to get the data out and and uh, get and have them get to where they need to go. And one of the biggest things that they need where they need to go is to the Department of Health. Now, when I say Department of Health, it sounds like it's one thing, but in the U.S., it's not. Every state has its own Department of Health, and every county has its own Department of Health. And in different states, they give the counties more and more, more or less responsibility for the reporting of infectious disease outbreaks. And for this emergency, every case or expected um, suspected case is a, is a part of the things that you need to report under normal circumstances. You only have to report the positive cases. So like for the flu or for um, chlamydia or something, you only have to report the positives. You don't report every time you ran a test. But right now, the emergency authorization and, and this crisis, they ask for every single test to be reported. That's why you know, that's why we know things like the incidence rate and the percent of positive patients per um, amount of tests that are being done is because of the people that are sending in the results to the Department of Health. So in some states, um, so one thing is, is, is true is that they're all different. Reporting to all the different states are all different. Some counties ask you to also report to them. Some counties say, report to us and we'll report it to the state. And all the different states gather the data up and then they report it to the CDC. Um, and the biggest problem is there is no standard format for delivering this information and I, there might be some among you saying but what about HL7 yes there actually is an HL7 around, uh, standard around uh, setting in this type of data but if you've ever worked with HL7 you know that it's not really a strict standard it's kind of like a it's like guidelines <laughs> and people can put the data in different formats and add and things that are optional for some people required for others and they might want a link code here and another company, another place might want a snowbag code or ICD code. And so, you know, when you want to be a company, so I worked with a bunch of regional companies that stayed in California and those were pretty easy to set up, even though I still have to do a lot of work to get the data from their systems or from Excel or wherever how to get the data. I would engineer a solution that would be able to take the data and get it into a format that, that, that the state of California wants and then send it to the state of California. Uh, usually automatically, sometimes not. Uh, 
And so a lot of states have said, okay, we know that not every company that's just starting out has access to HL7 because a lot of these vendors, they don't, they don't do it out the box. And you're not required as a, as a laboratory to have any certain type of electronic system. Uh, so some people just have Excel files where they manage their whole lab. Uh, it's just how they are doing it. So they, they have acceptable you know, CSV file formats for some states. Other states, um, and most states have that, but in the states that have that also have an HL7 option. And so, you know, a, a company that wants to go national, they have to have the requirements for every state and send out the results accordingly. If they want to go into a new state, they need to know what the requirements are for that state first. And that has been a real big challenge, trying to keep up with some of my clients and how fast they want to move because they want to try to bring you know, results to, to their pa to patients, but we have to get all the regulatory ducks in a row and our data ducks in a row first. And so, you know, that's what I've been doing for the last nine months is helping laboratories get started, the ones that are already started, helping them scale, and all of them trying to get their data in a format for the different states so that they can report their results to uh, the different departments of health. Uh, just one comment on that is that uh, it is an absolute fact that we are under-reporting the COVID tests because it is completely up to the goodwill of all of these different laboratories to report. And I have to imagine that there are some that are small enough that either aren't or aren't doing it very quickly or aren't getting the data to the, the laboratories and to the departments of health in a format that is suitable and they're getting either postponed and getting uploaded because the internal analysts at the Department of Health have to clean it first. So if you see the numbers, if you look at the Johns Hopkins numbers like I do, and you see that they change and they go down and they go up for, for the same date, that's why. It's because there's a lot of underreporting and late reporting that's happening. And it's, a lot of it is, one, lives just doing the best that they can with what they have and what they have in terms of data infrastructure is not very good. All right, well, that's been enough. It's been a very interesting uh, episode. I got to almost have to fight with a coyote in the middle of it, but I hope this was useful. So for all the other Hacker Public Radio uh, listeners, I encourage you to send out your own uh, episode whenever you can. I know it's been tough um, with all the things that are going on right now, but... This is one outlet that is great for all of us. It's a way to escape a little bit and uh, think about other things. It's also a way to just have community when we're kind of not really having uh, too much community as much right now with all the lockdowns. All right, well, that's it. Stay hacking. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. 
If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website, or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.